0: On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor, Mike Beaumont, to trace the life of Jesus then and now.
1: We're still in Jerusalem, Mike, and we're focusing on the suffering of Jesus. And this brings us to the Via Dolorosa. Now, first of all, could you just explain what the Via Dolorosa means and indeed what is it?
0: Yeah, Via Dolorosa is the Latin for um, the way of the cross, or the way of sorrows. And it's a processional route that covers that walk that Jesus would have made from the place where he was condemned in the Antonia Fortress, and that took him right up to Golgotha, where he was crucified. And over the years, Christians have recalled that journey, It goes back to some of the earliest Christian times, but the the sort of the present modern day route, because the city's obviously changed and so on, uh, follows a bit of a winding path. It's not one straight route. Uh, And really the the present day route with its stations only dates back to the 18th century. But the tradition of walking in that path of Jesus, for the purpose of recalling what he went through for us, Goes back to much earlier times.
1: So the actual distance from where he was condemned to crucifixion and the crucifixion itself was—it's sort of how far apart?
0: It's—it's it's a very short distance actually, 2,000 feet, 600 meters. But you know what? That distance, those 600 meters, must have been some of the longest and most painful meters that anybody has ever walked.
1: So those who follow that route, winding as it is now, avoiding uh, buildings that have been built upon that path, difficult to sort of follow uh, unless you've got a bird's eye view. Now, we have got a bit of a bird's eye view where (laughs) we are.
0: We certainly have. We've come up here sort of early in the morning onto the roof of of the Austrian hospice, which is near stations three and four. Um, Stations not in the sense of a railway station or a bus station, but locations of where particular things happened on that journey and they're traditionally called stations. And here we are on that roof and we have got an absolutely stunning view of the city of Jerusalem this morning, haven't we? I can look over to the east and I can see the Mount of Olives really so very close to us, the Kidron Valley just dipping down out of sight, coming up to the temple platform where the temple would have stood, but now the Dome of the Rock, that Muslim shrine stands. And then coming closer to us as i scan around i can turn around and see the church of the holy sepulchre which is perhaps the most probable location of jesus's crucifixion and we can look over the whole of the city see some of the ancient walls here and as we see these buildings so crowded in you know pushed up next to one another It's worth remembering, I think it's 22,000 people live in this tiny area of narrow streets where you can't really get ordinary vehicles round. And it would have been very much like this in the time of Jesus. Buildings crowded in on top of one another.
1: And as we talk, there'll probably be groups down below walking this route, carrying a cross very often, just in a symbolic sort of way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a very popular thing to do, particularly those from the Roman Catholic tradition. There are many Protestants do it as well. And interestingly enough, David, just as we came in the front door here of the Austrian hospice, there was a group uh, carrying a wooden cross, much smaller than the real cross that Jesus would have been nailed to, of course. But they do it to have this opportunity of taking some time to reflect on what it was that Jesus went through for us and to think about the theme of our episode for today, his suffering.
1: Perhaps you could just summarise what the stations are.
0: Yeah, why don't we do that? Um, And what we'll do is we'll pause as we come to those stations that have evidence for them in the New Testament and read those passages. One has to say that a whole number of these stations, focus on events that are not in the Bible. They're based simply on church tradition. But it might just be helpful to to go through them all, 14 in all at the moment. Though again, it's worth noting that through history, those numbers have have changed. But the first one is the Ecce Homo Arch. Behold, the man here is the man where Christ was condemned. He actually probably wasn't there. Uh, but was certainly very near to there. It was more likely in the Antonia Fortress, as we've looked at in a previous episode. The second one is the Franciscan Monastery and the Church of the Condemnation and Imposition of the Cross. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't Mm -hmm. it, for a title? But that is where, according to tradition, the cross was imposed on Jesus and he was condemned by the crowd. And you and I have just been standing on a a large area of Roman paving that was part of the courtyard of the Roman Antonia Fortress that stood on the corner of the temple overlooking it so it could keep its eye uh, on what was going on.
1: So where Jesus has been arrested.
0: Yeah, and you know what, that's a good place for us to read uh, one of the stories because here it connects with the New Testament. So I'm going to read here from Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said, and they spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him.
1: So suppose we should not underestimate the cruelty of the Romans at that point in the story.
0: Oh, the Romans knew how to be cruel. And of course, we often think of the crucifixion as being the height of that, but there is uh, so much cruelty going on here, so much suffering of Jesus going on here, and humiliation. Of course, the whole idea of stripping someone um, is to humiliate, particularly for a Jew, where nakedness was seen as something very private not to be displayed in public that twisting of the crown of thorns now do you know we're so used to seeing perhaps paintings of that or pictures of that and we see this little crown of thorns on his head but we've seen haven't we recently on our journey the thorns of the acacia tree that were used for this and the ones we saw were what about three inches long yeah incredibly sharp just put your thumb right at the end of it and go ow and yet a crown made of those, and then pushed onto his head so that the spikes would go into his head. I mean, this must have been incredibly painful for Jesus. And then they beat him up, to put it in our language. Mm. They take a staff and they beat him round the head and beat him and beat him. And we know how both painful and dangerous that can be. And all the time, they're mocking him. You know, they say, okay, so you're the, you're the king of the Jews, are you, let's, let's, put a, let's put a robe on you and let's worship you as the king you claim to be, and then take it all off him and, and then do this beating up of him, really. And did you notice as well, they spat on him? Mm. I mean, most of us would see that as foul and disgusting and, you know, it wouldn't have been spitting at his feet probably, it would almost certainly have been spitting in his face. And then they take all those robes off and they, it says simply, then they led him out to crucify him. So long before Jesus gets to the cross, you know, his suffering has begun here. In fact, one might say his suffering began really in the Garden of Gethsemane that we looked at in a previous episode where he agonized over what he knew lay ahead. There was no doubt emotional, psychological suffering as he was passed through all those different trials through the night and I'm sure he wouldn't have been handled gently by those that were guarding him but now it's as if the suffering is turned up a notch and
1: your body can only take so much
0: it can can't it and you know it's amazing really that that Jesus coped with all this that that he did cope with but the fact that his body could only cope with so much, why? Because he had become a real human being, is remembered at the third station on the Via Dolorosa. That's by the what's now the Polish Catholic Church, where, according to tradition, that was where Jesus fell for the first time under the weight of the cross. Now, there's a tradition in the modern-day Via Dolorosa route that he fell three times in earlier versions back in history it had him falling seven times but you know it doesn't matter whether it was three or whether it was seven I suspect it was a whole number carrying a cross that was a big enough size and it probably wasn't the cross as such what they used to carry was the cross beam the uprights were already there at the places of execution they were just permanently there because they were used that much so he is carrying this Heavy, heavy crossbeam.
1: Bearing in mind that he's been flogged as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how Jesus must have felt at this moment. I mean, just try and put yourself in this position. You've been through all of that. You're now being made to carry this heavy wooden beam. And, and your, your body can't do it. And yet, you know, humanly speaking, Jesus would have been a reasonably tough guy. He'd been a carpenter all his life. He would have lifted beams in his life. Yet even he, at this point, falls... And according to tradition it was there at number three site station where he fell for the the first time
1: in fact there's an indication that physically it was too much because the authorities bring somebody else in to help
0: yeah they do as they go on as we go past the fourth station which is the armenian church of our lady of the spasm wow that sounds quite a mouthful doesn't it but that recalls where Jesus met his mother. That's not in the Bible. I think it's not unreasonable because she is there with the other women, certainly at the crucifixion. Imagine the agony of a mother seeing her son put through all of this. And then as we come to station five, that's a Franciscan church that's dedicated to what you were referring to there when Simon of Cyrene, is pressed by the Romans into having to carry the cross for Jesus. And again, since that comes up in the New Testament, why don't we read that? It's Luke chapter 23 and verse 26. says, As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. So he was just passing through. And they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, you couldn't say no to the Romans in those days. They could, according to the Roman law, compel you to do whatever they want, press you into carrying burdens or here to carrying the cross.
1: An indication of how much suffering
0: Jesus was experiencing. Absolutely. I mean, this tough carpenter guy now cannot carry his cross any further. The journey's only just begun. I don't know exactly how far they've covered by now, but it really isn't very far at all. And, yeah, it's a reflection of, to put it in our language, how beaten up and abused Jesus had already been by this stage of his journey to the cross.
1: Films have been made over the years that have tried to capture the horror of this suffering, but how how can you do
0: that? The best that Hollywood can do in trying to portray that really can't get anywhere near it because it wasn't just an external suffering, it was an internal suffering as well, an emotional suffering, a spiritual suffering. The thing is, though, that stands out to me, David, although we've called this episode "is suffering, is the New Testament itself doesn't focus an awful lot on that. So it tells us the facts of what happened, but it's not going to make a great deal of the suffering per se. Why? because what it wants to do is lead us to the one place where the final suffering is the crucial thing, his death on the cross. And you know, one of the things you find if people come to visit the Holy Land for themselves is there will be moments somewhere on their visit where it gets them, where their voice chokes, where they shed a tear even if they're not the crying type because this is not just mere history this is the focal point of history this is where something incredible is happening where God has so loved the world that he is prepared to walk this way for us in order to pay the price for our sins and if that doesn't move you if that doesn't get you then nothing will
1: is it even more remarkable that on this way of the cross jesus actually spoke briefly to some of the bystanders
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, let's go back to completing the journey. We left it at Station 5 with Simon of Cyrene. Station 6 is a non-biblical event. It's called uh, the Church of the Holy Face, is where it's uh, located. And it's where the non-biblical tradition of Veronica wiping Jesus' face is supposed to have happened. And then at station seven, there's a Franciscan chapel where Jesus is said to have fallen for a second time. You know, I'm sure he fell many times. And it's interesting, you know, if he fell again there, it was after the heavy cross beam had been removed and he's still struggling. But then station eight, what's today the the chapel of St. Charalampos, uh, where Jesus stops and talks to some of the women who have been his followers and I find it amazing. In the midst of all his suffering, he finds space to give them encouragement. So why don't we read that one? Because that one is in scripture. It's Luke 23 and verse 27 onwards. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they'll say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? strange
1: words for somebody who's on the way to the cross
0: incredible i mean (laughs) here is jesus the compassionate showing compassion to others at the point when he is almost at the end of himself physically emotionally uh, psychologically spiritually he is utterly drained beaten up and he can still find a moment to speak to these women frankly to give them a a mini sermon and, and to say to them, look, I know why you're weeping and you're wailing, but you know, there's an even worse time going to come because if they've, if they've done this now, and this is the point of that odd image there at the end that if they've done these things when the tree's green, what will happen when it's dry? If they've done these things when God himself, his Messiah comes to earth, my goodness, what will they do when I am no longer here? And he's almost certainly looking ahead there to when Rome would finally attack this city in the Judeo-Roman War of A.D. 66 to 70, and eventually in A.D. 70, completely destroy this place, destroy the palaces, the temples, the buildings. And when many Christians at that time would escape simply because they had remembered Jesus' words about what would happen here and also in Matthew's Gospel at the end of Matthew, when he warns them to be ready to flee. So, both amazing and strange and compassionate words to find at this point of incredible pressure and need in his own life. Jesus always thinking of others.
1: In fact, despite what he was being put through, these were words of hope.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, this whole journey from his condemnation to the cross... To the grave is a message of hope despite the pain and you know it's still the same for us today Jesus brings to us a message of hope in the midst of our struggles in the midst of our pain in the midst of the tough things we are going through he he doesn't always rescue us from them but what he does is he comes alongside us and the one who's known suffering and pain and even death is the one who is utterly equipped there in heaven as he's seated at the Father's right hand to pray for us, help us, encourage us through those times. So, as his
1: journey to the cross continues, I mean, what suffering is still to come?
0: Well, according to tradition at Station Nine, the Coptic Church of St. Helen, Jesus fell for a third time. And as I've said, some traditions had seven. I suspect there were lots of stumbles on the way. And we can imagine the sort of things that the Romans would have done at a point like that. There would have been no mercy. He would have probably got a kick in the side and told to to get up. Station 10 is the modern chapel of the Franks where Jesus was stripped of his clothes by the Roman soldiers. Something that is recorded in scripture uh, because they were going to take his garments. That was one of the perks of being a member of an execution party, you got to take whatever they had and divide it up between you. We know that's exactly what they did with Jesus. And then stations 11 through to 14 cover what we'll be looking at in future episodes, his, his crucifixion, his death, his body being taken from the cross and being buried, and ultimately of course, rising from the dead, and the final station. Number 14 is his tomb inside the church of the sepulchre that's just there behind us. So that is
1: the journey that pilgrims can follow even today, roughly the same route, and pause at each point and reflect on the way in which his body was surely emaciated and he was treated so cruelly and the crucifixion itself was yet to come
0: to think that Jesus went through all of this for us. And you know, at any point, he could have called on his father's help. He could have said, hey, you know, let's quit this now, Father. He'd said in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he, that we can just look at and see over there on the hill of the Mount of Olives when they sent soldiers to arrest him and Peter drew his sword to to attack them and defend, and he said, put your sword away. Don't you know I could call on my father and he'd send legions of angels to my rescue? He could have done that at every point along this short route. At any point, he could have turned and said, right, Father. But no, he continued. Why? Well, because he'd certainly reaffirmed the issue in his heart over there in the Garden of Gethsemane that this was why he came. And remember, this is not something that the Father forced on Jesus. There's been a phrase going around in recent years that, you know, traditional understanding of what happened at the cross and all this suffering leading to it, we've understood it wrong because really all this is nothing more than cosmic child abuse. You know, how on earth can we believe in a God? who would make his son go through all of this. We wouldn't do that to our children, and yet we're expected to believe that God would. Well, this is not something that the father made his son do. This is something that Father, Son and Holy Spirit had planned between them from all eternity. This was something they'd agreed on. This was something they said, this really is the only way to deal with human sin, isn't it? And so, you know, as we've just been walking this route ourselves, David, that we're now looking down on, it is moving to think that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But that giving is not just a giving of the story of Christmas. It's not just a giving of nice teaching and healing and miracles. It's a giving that said, I love you enough to let my son utterly identify with you in all you go through, including your suffering, and through that suffering to take our sin upon him at that cross, as we'll see in an upcoming episode.
1: But surely there must have been another way. Why did it have to happen
0: through the suffering of Jesus? Oh, well, that is on my list of questions to ask the Father when I get to heaven. But I, I think we're given enough hints in the Bible to know why this was the only way. Could God have used a different way? Well, being God, I'm sure he must have been able to think. But you see, the only way that sin could be dealt with, we see throughout the Old Testament, was through sacrifice. The wages of sin is death the New Testament tells us. That's something that goes right back to the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and found that that moment they disobeyed God, death entered. Death entered into everything they were and touched and ultimately would enter in terms of bringing their life to an end. So the wages of sin is death. That's just how it is. This is, if you like, one of the cosmic laws of the universe. And so Jesus agrees to come in order to pay the price of that sin for us. And this whole suffering is, is part of that. It's partly identifying with us. There's quite a bit in the New Testament about how Jesus can identify with us, know what we are going through because he suffered. But the whole point of the suffering and the ultimate suffering at the cross is because this was the only way the wages of sin is death and so God himself says I will come and die in your place.
1: The thing is of course suffering is still with us today.
0: (laughs) It certainly is isn't it and just because Jesus walked this path of suffering and died on the cross doesn't bring suffering to an end because we live in a world where there are cruel and wicked people and bad stuff happens and it it won't be removed until christ returns at the end of the age and brings about god's new creation but one of the things the bible often says to us is you know it's because jesus himself suffered that he's now able to help us through our suffering hebrews two fourteen onwards says because he's suffered he's able to help those who suffer also but there's also a great passage that Peter has in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 where he's addressing a really down-to-earth situation of suffering where some of the early Christians who were slaves were getting badly treated by their masters and were suffering there. Uh, and it seems like they were asking the question, you know, well, why are we still suffering if, if Jesus has come and died for us? And... Here's what he says, so it's starting out by relating to them, but it's going to end up with something relevant for us. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. But how is it to your credit, if you receive a beating for doing wrong, and endure it, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. In other words, if you have done something wrong, you jolly well deserve whatever you get. But if you've done something right and you still suffer for it, do you know what? God will commend you. Now listen, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus didn't try and justify himself, fight his own corner. He gave it over to God. And, you know, there's an encouragement for us today. Jesus knows all about suffering. He, he's been through it. He understands when you're going through suffering, whether that's physical or emotional or psychological, whatever it might be. He understands. He's been through it. He's walked this way, the Via Dolorosa. But what did he model for us? He modelled not getting your own back, not turning round and taking revenge, not calling on angels from heaven to blast them off the face of the earth. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In other words, he said, Father, I'm going to trust you through this, that you are with me, you are for me, and you will have a purpose through this. And I find that a tremendous encouragement for us today, when we are facing suffering in our lives today.
1: Well, as we've been reflecting on the suffering of Jesus, we're at this vantage point, looking over the old city of Jerusalem, from Antonia Fortress, where he was condemned, to Golgotha, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where he was crucified. As we've been um, reflecting on this part of Jesus's life, pray for us now, Mike.
0: Lord Jesus, here on this rooftop where we look down to the path close to the one that you would have taken as you walked from judgment to crucifixion. We recall that you were a saviour who suffered. You could have come and cocooned yourself in cotton wool and kept yourself from all the hard knocks of life, but you didn't. You identified with us sinful human beings and all that our life involves, including suffering. And you modelled for us how important it is to trust our Father in heaven at such times and to not fight our corner or to get our own back, but to rather... Trust you that you have an incredible purpose through it, even if we can't see it. Today we pray for all who are suffering, that they would know your very real presence and that you would bring them through it to the point where they can see, ah, now I understand. And we ask this together. In your name. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus, then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30-minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB Player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs, or Bible surprises.